My name's Donna, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a child of God, and I am here this morning to reassure you or convince you that you also are a child of God. I'm very honored to be here. I found this to be a, one of the best conferences I've ever been to. Um, and I've been to a lot of them. It's a beautiful facility, and you may not know it if you're from this area, but you're especially friendly and loving people. Am I echoing off the back wall? Am I okay? Um, there were two things about this conference that were a problem. One, I couldn't hardly get my skirt this morning, and it's new. That really makes me mad, and it's a size bigger than I really wear already. But this thing of having a non-smoking and a smoking hospitality room is a real opportunity for a compulsive old reader like me. Because <laughs> you feel like when you're wearing one of these white ribbons, everybody's kind of watching you anyway, kind of to see if you're a saint and all that. And so I go in the non-smoking and delicately two or three plates full of food and then kind of circle the sweets again and gather up some cookies and and then I eat them on the way down the hall to the smoking one and go in it and it's a fresh start. Just like bankruptcy. It's a fresh start. Nobody in there seen me and I just look like I'm just barely eating as I grab three or four chocolate chip cookies, four or five of those miniature butterfingers out of the bowl. I'm not kidding either. The other thing is that mirror contraption that's in my room by the bathroom mirror. It's a big bathroom mirror, and then the men probably didn't even notice it, but I know every woman in here did. There's this little mirror that slides up and down the wall so you can swing around and see the back of your head, and all it's real cool. But it's, it's made with a sliding arm for midgets and giants. And when I put it clear up to the top, it still wasn't tall enough for me, and that disgusted me, so... I'm going to have to buy one and mount it higher on the wall. I want to pay tribute to the Al-Anon family group. I was real pleased to hear other speakers do this. Um, I can't laugh about Al-Anon. I can't make jokes about Al-Anon. Al-Anon has saved many lives that are in this room and played an integral part of the miracle of who I am standing in front of you today. And I appreciate and respect the program of Al-Anon and thank the program because I'm not, I'm just not sure I'd be alive if it weren't for Al-Anon also. I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I probably should tell you that nothing I'm going to say is AA's opinion and I sometimes say things that stomp on people's toes pretty bad so just remember when you're getting earthed with me that this isn't AA's opinion, it's just mine. I was born in Tulsa and I stayed in Tulsa. I'm 46 years old. Um, kind of was raised in the fertile breeding ground for alcoholics, a good Christian home. And I can't tell you any of the horror stories we've heard from the podium this weekend about my childhood. My parents stayed married. They went to church every Sunday. They were pretty reasonable, responsible people, and neither one of them were alcoholics. In fact, they drank two highball seeds every night. So I had no idea what alcoholism was and had nothing against drinking. I didn't think it was an evil thing at all. I, from the, my earliest memories, um, my very earliest memories, I felt like I was different. I've always felt like I was stretched too tight, like a rubber band that's wound so many times that if you just would wind it one more time, it would flip over on itself. That's then, my, from my earliest memories, it seemed like I took life too seriously. I worried about everything. I wasn't comfortable. I didn't feel like I belonged here. I was jealous of other kids when I was four, or five, six years old, that they were so happy-go-lucky, and they didn't even think about the things I thought about. And this is not because of my family. Um, it, it, I believe that I would have been the way I was regardless of the environment I was in. It might have been heightened or lessened, but... Diana Clark has just turned that way. Um, I was always a real good student. I was a little bookworm. And when I was young, I was quite overweight. I've always had eating problems, problems with food and fighting my weight. And I was very buck-toothed. 
I was so butt-toothed that they put braces on me in the fifth grade and put before and after pictures of my mouth in the American Dental Society's magazine. So I really was butt-toothed, and I really was not a very cute little girl and acutely aware of it. And I just, I always knew I was different, and I always knew that life was a struggle and that you needed to worry about it and that I had a heightened awareness of the problems that were all around me and the sadness and the hopelessness and the wrongs. It was just more so than the other children, and I never felt like I fit in. No, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I didn't feel like I fit in here when I first got here. I, as I got older and went through the stages of being horse crazy and this crazy and that crazy, then I got boy crazy, and that was... um just led me into another whole phase of my malfunction and my failure to grow up in this world, and that was a tremendous dependency on men. You'll see me try to start words like codependent, dysfunctional, inner child, and boundaries, because I consider that psychobabble. I might as well just go ahead and step on some toes right here early. Early. Get them out here. Um, it's a bunch of bull, as far as I'm concerned, and I love my sponsor who told me one day, I'll tell you about your inner child. You better grab her by both arms, take her over the closet, set her down hard in the chair and tell her to stay there, or you're not going to stay sober. And I said, that's just the opposite of how I want to treat her. And she said, well, I'm not just, I'm not just allowing that that's important, that childlike spirit that's within all of us. But she said, you don't need to go back and try to nurture her. What you need to do is give that childlike spirit in you a solid, stable, stabilized, spiritual adult within which to develop. So you concentrate on the adult, Diana, because you've been your, your inner child's been running your life for 31 years. I've been sober since June 10th, 1982. Um, I always had this problem, though, that if I didn't have a boyfriend, I had priorities. They were just the wrong priorities. I had to have a boyfriend. I had to have something to make the rubber band back off, and then I could address life growing up, whatever it is you're supposed to do as you pass through your years here on this earth. I've come now to know that there's a distance between our birth and our death and that it doesn't matter how long that distance is. It only matters that it's not empty. And mine was empty for 31 years until I came here. Emptiness haunted my every waking moment. And I tried to fill it, as they say, with a lot of things. I thought I wouldn't be so empty if I had the right man. And I blew through three marriages. Um, I got married when I was 21, 24, and 27. And I got divorced in between. (laughs) Uh, This experience was to be very useful to me later in my life. The promises have come true because now I'm a domestic lawyer. But... um. I had to get married, but I had no idea why you married or how you stayed married. I believed that love was kind of an investment. You'd have a reason to marry them, and there was some kind of investment. You'd put in invest yourself to a certain extent to get back a certain return, whether it was emotional, um, financial, prestige, whatever it was. I only saw love as an investment. I never understood it was a commitment. So I made some poor investments, as we all do, when we get into those relationships with expectations like that. Nobody cares to live up to your expectations. I've learned a hard lesson through life, and it's Al-Anon put it into words for me. Nobody is placed on this earth to live up to your expectations. And that can be a husband, wife, parent, child. Nobody. Every person, every human being has a God-given right to be exactly the way they are right now. And that's been a very hard thing for this alcoholic step. I blew through those three marriages and three divorces and along the way decided one Christmas that Christmas wasn't the same without a child and I wanted a baby. I've never been a baby person. When I was little and other people were getting little baby dolls with the little bottles and stuff, and Barbie dolls, I wanted a bride doll. That came true, too. And I did. That's what I played with, the bride dolls. I'm just fascinated with the melodrama, I suppose. I, um, I've lived my whole life fascinated with melodrama. I'm sure you can relate to that. 
I decided that the quickest, easiest way, the easier, softer way to get this baby in my life was to adopt one. But I had been married a few too many times and was an active alcoholic. I started drinking in high school, and I started drinking beer like all the kids do. And I look at the kids now, and I see that some of them may become alcoholics or are alcoholics, and some of them aren't because some of my friends drink just as much as me, and they're fine. But every time there was a chance to drink some beer, I was at the party. And I would be the first one to see how much beer was in the refrigerator or if there was a keg, if there was going to be adequate supplies for me. And I soon learned that if you just get a six-pack on the way and drink it, you would kind of back off the rubber band a little bit. Always worried about something. And no matter how sick it made me or the man of my dreams had taken me to the party and then I had become his nightmare and thrown up all over his car, Nothing ever stopped me from doing it again. The thought never crossed my mind not to do it again. Not to drink again was not within my realm of reality. I did think I'm going to have to learn to do a little better. I'm going to have to learn to control it a little better because I could always recall that spell, maybe five minutes or ten minutes where it was the way I wanted it to be. Of course, it got to where I'd have that spell before I ever got to the party, but that didn't dissuade me. Nothing stopped me. I was always chasing that moment when you had just enough to drink, and it's just great, and the rubber band's backed off, but you're not dizzy, sloppy. You know, everything's perfect. The world's perfect. Um, I never was too good at staying there. And as I got older and became a more sophisticated drinker, the scotch and soda route, I um, found that in a bar, just about the time you get to that point, if you're scientifically minded like me at all, you'll soon learn that there's still about four or five behind it that haven't hit yet. You, get, you drank them, but they haven't hit yet. And there's no way to get rid of them, so you're going to pass right on through to being drunk again. I never got it down. I never got it down. I did go out, and I did find a child I could adopt, and um, I heard about this baby being born in another state, and his mother was a drug addict, and his mother was white, his father was supposedly black, and nobody wanted this child. She was 19, it was her fifth child, and I made arrangements to get her to Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, alcoholics are funny people. I never was evil. I did a lot of evil things, if you look at them. I, I blew through some people's lives, and I did a lot of things that were cruel, mean, thoughtless, bad karma. But when I was when I was at that age and I adopted that little boy, it was not with evil intent. It was with the biggest of hearts. I I wanted to be like Mother Teresa. I wanted to be like this family that they showed, the DeVolts on TV that had adopted 20 little children and some of them didn't have any arms or legs. I thought that was neat. I truly did. And I got this little boy and... He was premature, and I finally got to see him for the first time when he came out of the intensive care prenatal ward. And when they put him in my arms, um, Andy said this last night, I had a feeling of love like I had never had before in my life. I absolutely loved this child. And I was very devoted to him. I was wound up somewhere between my second and third marriages, just like I'd have one out in the wings. So, you know, <laughs> I can't remember just where I was at that point. But I went home, and this child was premature, and he was so little, and he had to feed him so often, I didn't drink. I somehow intuitively knew I couldn't drink, and I didn't for a few months. And I bonded with him, and I loved him like I'd never loved anything before since. Two years later, I had a chance to adopt another little boy in similar circumstances, and I'd proven myself to this doctor that had the hotline on to the second baby, and I signed up for him, sight unseen, didn't care what shape the child was in, sex, anything, I'd take it. And I got my second child. And I was 27 when I got the first one and 29 when I got my second son. And when I brought him home, I couldn't quit drinking. Now that's, that's how good my facade has always been. When I was a little girl, I was so scared. I was born in a sea of fear. And I was so afraid that um, I just didn't even want anyone to know how afraid I was. It was like if I let it out, if I let it have any outward manifestations of fear in me, I just would die, I guess. So I developed this facade that you see this morning. 
of a very confident, outgoing, articulate, almost to the point of arrogant um, woman. And I had that in me when I was about three years old, and I can remember that. And that can become a very ugly trait, and it doesn't invite uh, sympathy and help. I, I put on that same front for the doctor and for a lot of other people. They had no idea that I was, at that point, a daily alcoholic in a hopeless condition. And I had no idea either that I was under the spell of this cunning, baffling, powerful disease. I'd like to pause a moment and tell you how touched I am by this candle up here. I want to tell you how grateful I am that God in his mercy and through his grace did not have me come to and realize I was an alcoholic in a prison. I should be there with those men that made this candle. And I'm sure many of them did nothing more than the things I did. Certainly not in the spiritual realm in the invisible world of the pain and suffering I caused other people. And I bless those men. And I want them to know and feel right now that they are here in spirit with us. And we need to work more with the men and women who come out of prison. They're lost, and that's why they end up back in prison. And we should be the group of all on the earth to reach out to them. I I was hopelessly drinking by the time I was 29 years old. Every night was uh, getting to the bottle, nursing the bottle, getting those kids in bed so I could worship the bottle, and drink until I passed out. And that's how it went. I was in real estate. I graduated from college with honors. And um, I've been quite well financially by hook or crook. It didn't hurt that I'd married my third boss. Although he turned out to be a worm. He didn't have anything. I have to always get that in. Because someday he's going to come back to the program and listen to one of these tapes. And I want him to know I still think he's a worm. Do you think that's a resentment? <laughs> I'm holding on. No, bless him. He's, he's done some good things. Um, not sure what they are. I was really a mess at this point in my life, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that if you cut me open, it would just be brown worms. I didn't know how empty it was. I was still so frantic on my search. It hadn't dawned on me. I wasn't going anywhere, and I wasn't finding anything. I was absolutely bankrupt. But I had been causing all the crisis in my life. I had been causing them. It's different when you drink and you get a DUI or you get married to the guy you knew 11 days that you met at the bar and then decide, you know, you wake up one morning and look at him, you done look good, so you divorce him. At least you're bringing those problems on yourself. And these people that are starting to call you flaky and think you're kind of out there and not doing too well in life, you can blow them off because you're in control. You're in control of all these bad things that are happening. But when I was about 30, 29 or 30, things started happening to me and I wasn't, I, I couldn't control them. In other words, real life kicked in. Real life. And we're, I believe that this creator, and you can call this power anything you want to, I, I think it's all one and the same. There's great white spirit, great hope, love, cosmic force, um, call it anything. I choose to call it God, um, not always, sometimes in my prayers, and other times I often say Wonka Tonka, which is what the Sioux Indians call their God. Um, this God has a love and a mercy and a grace that is so much bigger than we can imagine. And I believe that people in Alcoholics Anonymous have a rare opportunity to touch on a glimpse of it that most people don't ever get. My life started falling apart when I was 29 or 30. I was from a rather small family. I had a brother, a sister, my mom and dad. I really didn't have any grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. I had one great aunt, my maternal grandmother's sister, who had promised before I was born to be my grandmother and was my grandmother to me. And that was the people, that were the people in my family. My father became suddenly ill and went to the hospital and he ultimately died of a kind of a rare condition he had. It took 16 months. It was very painful and I drank through it. And I, um, towards the end of his 
life, I became the only blood donor possible for him. My sister was in a nursing home with multiple sclerosis, and my brother was a drug addict, and he moved to the plains on Kansas. And I uh, donated in a big blood procedure where they use eight units of my blood every week. I um, donated these blood parts that kept my father alive, and suddenly it became very difficult for me to do it physically. I couldn't pass the test or anything, and they found out I was pregnant. And it was one of those drunk pregnancies. I mean, I don't know how I got pregnant. Sure thought I was being responsible, and I'm sure I didn't have any fun. But I was pregnant. Getting some good laughter on that. You know, just a few people understand, but they're really laughing. Um, the doctors kind of ushered me into a room with my mother, who had no ability to cope with my father's impending death. There was still some vague chance a miracle might have turned it around, and they told me, you know, you're either going to have an abortion and be rid of this baby, or your dad's going to bleed to death within 21 days. That's your only choice. So I had an abortion, and it was kind of a uh, unique experience and emotionally and spiritually painful for me. It's the only time I'd ever been pregnant then or since in my life. And that was on January 4th, 19. 80, and on May 10th, my father died. And I stood by him as he died in the room with him, and I looked over at my mother, and I knew that at that moment she had died also. They had been married 44 years. And on December 18th, I went over to her house. Um, I, I was very close to my parents, and I went over to her house, and I found her dead in her bed. At that point, I was really drinking. Drinking killed the pain, and, and all these deaths pulled together are a melodramatic dream for an alcoholic because people around me were starting to say, oh, God, oh, my God, how are you standing this, arranging all these funerals? And, and I'd think, oh, you don't even know I lost that baby, too. And all. I was just so self-pitying. And drinking, just straight now. I didn't need a glass. I didn't need, well, I still needed a glass at that time, but I didn't need ice and I didn't need soda. I just needed hot shots. And 89 days after my mother died, my great aunt, my grandmother, died. And that year, or nine months, took me into the pits of hell. I have come to believe that I can deal with anything life could give me, in terms of my own health, my family, death, anything, any horror, today. Because I have tremendous power that has been given to me by God. Tremendous coping skills, tremendous maturity, but I had nothing then. This was like piling that on a two-year-old, an immature two-year-old. And I found Valium. And I quit getting a glass when I drank Scotch. And I drank Scotch, and I took Valium. And I drank Scotch, and I took Valium. I've been told I drank around the clock. I don't remember it. My dignity won't let me remember it. Um... My friends would find me in a little huddle all drawn up from other kinds of psychotropic drugs they had me on, Haldol, and you know the rounds. I was in terrible shape. Now, I lived in a real nice home, and I hired someone to come in and take care of those two little boys who were getting nothing that little boys need to get. Nothing. No bonding from their mother, no love, but they were really well taken care of. Um, you wouldn't have known from the outside the shape I was in and the bottom I had hit. My second husband, my life was really completely out of control with the drinking and drugging now. People were around me all the time trying to help me with my business, trying to help me be the executor of these estates, trying to keep me from overdosing. One day they found me out laying across my parents' grave at 11 o'clock in the morning, laying on the ground across my mother and father's grave with a fist of scotch in one hand and a load, loaded 38 in the other because I was trying to drink up my nerve to just go ahead and leave the earth. You get to the point, and many people in this room have been there, where it doesn't matter what pretty words you hear or what preacher on TV or how much money you could have or anything else. It's over and you know you're beyond recovery. You know something inside yourself. And people try to give you a pep talk and tell you about Jesus and everything else, but you know you're beyond recovery. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says the main taproot for us, taproot, the one central root from whence all else will grow, is complete 
50. Where are you going to go in the world when you have our heart? The level of defeat we felt and hear that. You've got the tap root, that strong root that's going to grow into Grandmother Earth and blossom if you have ever been completely defeated or you're completely defeated now. My second husband, second ex-husband actually, came to me one day and made amends to me he had found this program. And I realized that if he was an alcoholic, I was an alcoholic. First thing I knew about it. So please don't make the assumption, this was in 1982, that everybody surely in the United States heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't make that assumption because you've been around here a while. A lot of people have never heard of it. A lot of people have no idea they're alcoholics or about alcoholism. The same way for Al-Anon. Don't think everybody knows you're there to help. We've got to remember the old spirit of AA and Al-Anon that reached out, that looked for people who had problems, not to intrude upon their lives, but to let them know about the hope and the love that's here. Don't assume the media and those before us have done our work. They haven't. I never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 31 years old. This man took me for coffee and told me about it, and I, I was so desperate since I couldn't work up my nerve to shoot my brains out. I knew my kids needed me, and all they were coming to was an empty well. I knew my life was miserable. I knew whatever talents I had were gone, and I just could not go on. I was at the point of complete defeat, and I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting the next day at noon. as a church in Tulsa with purple doors, and God gave me the grace to find it. And grace is the biggest concept, the one thing I want everyone in this room to hear. If God sent me here for any reason, and he truly did, I don't say that to be presumptive. I say it in humility. It's to tell you about God's grace. Grace is the unmerited divine assistance that's given to us for our regeneration. It's unmerited. You don't have to deserve it. Not how dirty you think you are, what you think you've done, or how far gone you are, how completely defeated you are. It's unmerited. There's nothing you can do, and Mother Teresa could be sitting next to you right now in spirit, and she wouldn't merit it any more than you do. It's unmerited divine assistance. Of course we've been beyond help. Of course we felt hopeless and helpless, and maybe do today. There isn't anything but divine assistance. Any worldly method you've used, it won't work. We need this unmerited divine assistance given to us. God wants to give us this grace that he abounds with. As a gift, like if you have a child or a niece or a nephew or a neighbor that you got a bicycle for for Christmas and you just can't wait till Christmas morning, you're all up all night so excited to give the bicycle to that child. That's how God is about giving grace to us. He's up all night. He's up all night. He just wants us to want it, to take it, to open our eyes and see it. Given to us for our regeneration. Regeneration. I love roses. I love roses. If you ever come to Tulsa, Oklahoma and come to my house, you'll just see that when I'm not passing on, I'm digging up more ground, planting more roses. I love them. Rose bushes. If you see a little bushy rose bush and it's in full bloom and all its little leaves are green and hide its thorns and it has buds and flowers on it and it's just a beautiful thing and it doesn't need regeneration. But if you go to Walmart at the end of the season, I'll go this fall, they put a little wooden step thing out in front as you go in the door and none of those tacky black and white signs above it that say $1 and on the bench are rose bushes. Hardly recognizable. They're little black canes coming out of plastic packages and the dirt falling out the bottom of them and they've got black spot on their canes and not a leaf, not a bloom. You wouldn't even know what they are and just these thorns and they have them these little wires poking their neck. But in those packages, there is a rose bush that needs regeneration. And that's what I was when I got here. I was one of those rose bushes that hadn't had any fertilizer, hadn't had sunshine, water, no true care. People had just used me for what they could get from me because that's all I was good for. And I had alcoholism as a wire wrapped around my neck choking me off and nothing but thorns showing who wanted to pick me up. 
unmerited divine assistance given to us for our regeneration, grace, the grace of God. I walked in my first meeting Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't feel it. I didn't feel like I belonged. I thought um, you all were different. I drove up to that first meeting in a paid-for Cadillac with enough diamond jewelry on to choke a horse and a mink coat, and it was July. But I wanted you to know who I was. I wanted you to know that I wasn't just some skanky drunk. And I went in there, and um, I didn't feel like I belonged. But they let me sit there. You know, they just kind of ignored me, really. That was a relief. And I went to those noon meetings for 90 days because I knew that the real alcoholics went to night meetings. The desperate alcoholics went to night meetings. So I stayed strictly with noon meetings. That was a little more sophisticated and classy like me. And I kind of tried to tell them about working the steps. And, you know, I knew they just didn't know anything about God or the Bible. After all, I was a trained Bethel Bible teacher. And I could see that you needed me. And um, at the end of that 90-day period, which I stayed sober for 90 days, on these concepts you're hearing come out of my mouth now, I decided to drink again. But let's talk about why I even stayed sober 90 days. Um, magic dust. There is a magic dust. Now, you all would relate to it if I say when you fall in love, you get kind of sprinkled with that magic dust. We all have that feeling. It's just, you know. Well, there's magic dust in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you come in a meeting with any desire to stay sober, and for any reason, I don't believe it has to be for yourself at all. I never bought that. But you come in here and for some reason you're searching, this magic dust falls on you. And I'm telling you, it's real. I used to not describe this to anything but women's retreats and women's terms because I thought the men would think it was so silly. But there really is magic dust now, and I know it, and I've talked to so many men that feel it, that I want you all to know it's in this room. There is a magic power in this room, a love, a connectedness, and a magic dust that's falling on all of us invisibly in the air. That's what kept me sober for that 90 days. It was nothing else. And I spoke at a conference not too long ago, and there was a man there with 50 years of sobriety. And I talked about magic dust on Saturday night. And Sunday morning, he came up to me in the restaurant. I was drinking coffee, and he said, Honey, you know what that magic dust is? And I thought, oh, God, he's going to say bunch of bull. And I went, No. And he said, It's the dust that falls off those angel wings when they're flying around our meeting rooms. Fifty years. So I'm going to tell you all about the magic dust from now on. And there are angels. There are truly angels. Like God, you can think of them in any way you want to. But there are forces in the invisible world that come and help us. They've kept us alive. They've guided us here. They've helped us find Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous. That magic dust kept me sober that 90 days. And those angels, those guiding spirits, and then I went back out because I did a four-step and discovered that I was on the verge of becoming an alcoholic. And that I was going to have to really watch it. So I went back out and I did a little controlled drinking for nine months, and amazingly successful at the beginning, I'd have a couple of drinks and stop. I mean, it was better than having to quit altogether. But by the end of the nine months, as our book says, over any considerable period of time, and I think as humans, we so much look at today or last week, compare this month to that month, we need a much bigger time frame. Over any considerable period of time, we will both get worse if we're away from our family here, and we will get better if we're in recovery. And over that nine months, horrible things happened to me. I started having broken bones, and cast on my arms that were hard to explain and being thrown across my kitchen and breaking another bone when I just got a cast off the week before and it culminated at the end of the nine months on June 9th, 1982 with my two beloved sons, lousy mother that I was, ungiving, unable to show my love or turn it into any useful transference of time or attention to my children and when they did get my attention they got it from being bad and I would slap them and scream at them and do those things alcoholics do, howling on to. 
those two little beloved boys were standing in the door of my living room, unbeknownst to me. I thought they were asleep when their father shot that 38 loaded with hollow point bullets at me. And the bullet literally went through my hair and into the wall. And that was my moment of truth when I turned around and I saw my son. Because my life, I already knew, had come to a state of ugliness and despair and futility that was beyond recall. Somehow I thought I hid that from those children. I guess I thought I'd die and they'd have a better chance. I don't know what I thought. I just know they were standing there in the door watching that. And when I put them back to bed, it was really that horrible, horrible sense of guilt and remorse. It's just overwhelming. It was never supposed to be like this. I didn't adopt them to show them this life. We don't have our children any tin for it to be the way it is. And the next day, I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I belonged. And the magic dust fell on me. I felt angel wings around me, even though I couldn't have said the words then. And I surrendered. Complete defeat. And grace started flowing into my life. The best it could, I was so closed up. I'd had so much loss so much death, and I was so arrogant and bitchy and haughty that they just let me sit in there. I tried to tell them how to run the meetings and tried to shut people up, you know, when I wasn't even leading the meeting. Oh, you said enough, because you won't get to my turn, and I've got the important stuff to say. And Oh, I was bad. I really remember it. And I see women like that come in today, or even men, and I don't like them. Honey, you won't make it. And I forget how much love was given to me. I got a sponsor, and boy, you're missing out on part of the ride if you don't get one, and then find people a sponsor. And don't say no one's asked me. Well, there's people all over this room probably that need a sponsor. You go find someone. Volunteer yourself. Um, I got a woman to be my sponsor, and she had a real stiff neck. She was like a nun, like this. She smoked, but she never moved her neck. I found out years later she'd had her neck fused, but I thought she was just a saint, you know. And I knew she would never understand anything I did, you know, and I'd slowly but surely give her little dribbles of the story about the men and the bars and the affairs and the things, you know, and I found out she was worse than me. No wonder she had to have her neck used. The very first time I went to see her, I'm telling her all this stuff, you know, that I want to tell her. And I, someone told me I had to go to her and took me to her house and drove off and abandoned me there. I had to stay there with her. It was horrible. But they knew I was not going to get a sponsor with any time that could see through my baloney. So they took me over there. And um, I told her everything I wanted her to know. And when I finally finished, I was talking, you know, 10, 20 million miles a minute for two hours. <laughs> she wanted to hear what I had to say. And uh, she said, got a boyfriend in AA yet? And I said, I'm married. She said, I know that. Got a boyfriend in AA yet? I said, no, but I've got one spotted. <laughs> I did, too. I had like six weeks of sobriety this time, and I had held hands with this man during the Lord's Prayer and felt the force. <laughs> and, man, I was on the move. Do you know, you know, Angie told us how she could pick the sickest man in the room. He's probably a beginner compared to me. This guy shoveled elephant dung at the zoo for a living. That's true. I thought it was real spiritual. <laughs> well, I admitted to her I had my eye on this guy. She said, get rid of him. And I said, I don't even have him yet. <laughs> you know, I'm working on that. She said, no, I want you to go to him and tell him that you've got a crush on him. She said, he knows it. Alcoholics know these things. And she said, tell him you, not to call you, not to mess with you. You're a newcomer and leave you alone. Or I'm going to talk to him. And do you know that's one of the first times I ever did anything anybody told me and why I don't know I didn't like her I didn't admire her I thought she was an old mean battle axe with a stiff neck but I guess I was so scared that she knew about it I went to him and told him that of course he said where I come from sponsors don't give you advice well she gave me advice thank God and I give my sponsors advice and they buy God better take it too man I needed some advice when I'm telling myself what to do I'm in bad shape I stayed sober. I stayed sober. She wouldn't let me divorce Mr. Worm. She told me I had to go to Allen on every week for a year. She said that if I got rid of him, even though he was a worm, if I got rid of him, it would be even worse for my children and me because I'd get one who was sicker. 
And I thought that was real offensive, but I I went to Al-Anon every week for a year in addition to my AA meetings. And at the end of the year, I went to her and I said, can I divorce Worm now? And she said, no, you're so sick, you've got to go to Al-Anon for another year, and then you can divorce him. And I said, now this ain't going to be a trick, is it? Another year. She said, no. And at the end of two years of going to Al-Anon every week, she let me divorce him. And I did. And um, the kids and I, here I was, a single mother with two children. I haven't told you much about my children. I've been sober long enough now, and so many unbelievable things have happened to me because of the grace of God. As the big book says, my attitude toward my instincts has undergone such a radical revision. I can't tell you about it all, but my children had terrible problems. My children had terrible problems. My oldest son had five learning disabilities. They tried to tell me he was mentally retarded when he was in the first grade. And I'm a person who, I don't look like I'd be overwhelmed, but you can overwhelm me with anything. And this is especially true after the breakdown I had with, after all those deaths. I had complete mental, physical breakdown. Um, but I wasn't a drunk mother telling me my little boy was mentally retarded. I was a sober mother. And I had cracked the door in Alcoholics Anonymous and through the help of sponsors and meetings, even meetings that I thought I was getting nothing out of, I had cracked the door for this grace to start trickling in, this unmerited divide for my regeneration. And I wasn't the mother I used to be. I thought, I don't think he's retarded, and I scraped together $800 I didn't have and took him to a different place, to a specialist. He had five learning disabilities, but he was gifted. And I started out, I found a way to get the money for him to go to a private school, and I mean it was one day at a time. I had to get to my job. By then I was in a regular job so I could have regular insurance. My little boy had life-threatening asthma. He had to have medical insurance. About the time I got my oldest son, John, lined out where he was going to be able to read, they told me he'd never read, never be able to write, never be able to do any math. But his IQ was like 150. By the time we got him going in what seemed to be the right direction, the private schools and private tutoring, and me in this tutoring in Alcoholics Anonymous, I realized what bad shape my youngest son was feeling in. He was one of those children that would never look you in the eye. He'd rather lie than tell the truth, set fire, start nodding your head if it's making sense to anyone. Love, blood, guts, and gore. Fascinated with that. Totally oppositional. Um, he, he's been diagnosed as unbonded in Colorado to schizophrenic, character disordered, psychopathic. Um, this child had really bad problems. And I mainstreamed my older son back into the fifth grade and I started turning my attention the best I could on my younger one. Our life was absolutely hell. We spent our time, my older son and I and our energy, trying to contain this so-called monster among us. Trying to put out the fires literally and figuratively, trying to keep him in school. He was kicked out of AA nurses, church nurses, everything. He just consumed our lives. I was enmeshed with trying to fix him because I felt that I was certainly what was wrong with him. I hadn't been able to quit drinking, if you'll recall, when he came along and he never got what he needed. And to this day, I can't tell you the guilt's gone. He didn't get what he needed. And I am part of the problem of what's wrong with little Paul. When Paul was nine and my older son John was 11, and they're now 18 and 20. I went to Paul's counselor. He's in all kinds of therapy. All our money, everything went to what's wrong with Paul, how can we fix Paul? And his therapist said, Diana, I want to see you alone. And I went in there, and he said, did you ever have a dream? And I said, a dream? What do you mean? He said, like a dream of what you wanted to be or how you want your life to be? Mama made me mad. And I said, yeah, I have a dream. I have a dream that I can go to bed at night, sleep through the night without waking up wondering what Paul's going to do when he gets older. And then I have simpler dreams, like enough food in the refrigerator and enough money to pay the six-month car insurance premium when it comes. And you know, real exotic dreams like that, doctor. And uh, he said, no, no, that's not what I mean. He said, your whole life is just embroiled in these kids and especially Paul. And he said, I mean your dream. What was your dream when you were little? And I reached back into my memory, and I remembered um, 
one dream when you're stretched as tight as me and worried as much as I am, you don't spend a lot of time daydreaming, and I never did. But I remember Abraham Lincoln has always been my hero, my biggest hero, and he was a lawyer. And I told my father when I was four, I wanted to be a lawyer. I did want to be a lawyer. got a scholarship to go to law school when I was 21, but, you know, drunk passions up. You listen carefully if you have a dream out there, and you're thinking, I'm too old, or I passed up my chance at my dream, or I drank it away. No excuses that you have a dream. That doctor told me to go to the University of Tulsa and pick up a catalog for the law school. And I said, why? Why? I've got to get back to work. And my lunch house told us, I said, yes, do it. So I had learned by being an alcoholic anonymous how to have a job, do what I was told, listen to my sponsor. I could actually be guided occasionally. Although that's the glorious thing to say. The truth is, the stalker was real good looking and I had a crush on him. And I went and did it because I had a crush on him, and I didn't want to go back and tell him I hadn't done it. And I knew I'd be that back the next week with Paul. So I went one by to you, and I got the catalog, and talked to a woman briefly, and she lied to me. She told me you could take a class just at night. If you really liked law, you could just take like a class and contract at night. You'd never be, just like when you get any degree, you go take classes, even if you're never going to get the degree. And I thought, well, that's cool, and that'll please him. So I talked to her about um, how you get in? She said, well, you have to take a little test called the LSAT, the law school entrance exam, and it's in 11 days. And you can just walk in and take it for $50. And I said, well, is it easy? She said, well, most people have been taking a course for four months, but you're too late, so just go take it. Why? Why did I go take it? Why did this rubber band stretch this tight still and still today? Why did I go take the test? Why did I spend $50 I needed to fill Paul's prescriptions? I don't know. But I went and I took it. So I was going to take that contract five the night. I was going to touch my dream. Great. It was the unmerited divine assistance given to me for my regeneration. And I took the altar. In a room with a grippy ceiling and the kids who were pressure cooked, they were getting up, running out of the room, throwing up because it was so important to them to do well on it and get in law school. And I was just there for the ride. I'd already gotten on the big train in my life. I had become alcoholic anonymous, and I had become sober, and I had the ability to be a mother and a useful member of society. And it wasn't that important to me to be all that. Taking a contract class at night, I was doing kind of what I was told. And I took it, and I left. I had put in my application at University of Tulsa, never planning to go, really, and never planning to, I never talked to him about how much it would cost. I knew it was more than I could afford except one class at a time and never talked to him about financial aid or scholarship. And I went home and my LSAT scores came. And I blown the top off the test. And I knew when I opened that envelope and looked at that that God had taken the LSAT. And if it something bigger than me was going to get a grip on Diane Clark. And it ends with thing. A few days later, I got an envelope in the mail. And by now, I thought, boy, my dream would just be, be accepted to the law school. I really was going to frame the letter, and I was so thrilled that I would even think about it. Touch, touch your dream. A few days later, the envelope came, a fatter envelope, and it had a real beautiful piece of letterhead in it. And said, Miss Diana Clark, you've been accepted to the University of Tulsa College of Law, and I was first in tears, and oh, I was so thrilled that I proved that I could have gone. I proved that God was on my side, and I knew I had to raise these kids, and I couldn't quit my job, and I wasn't going to go, but that was enough. Behind it was the purple mini-grass sheet that said the tuition was $10,000 a year, and the book would be $700 a semester, and blah, 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 and where you could apply for aid, and I didn't know because I wasn't going to go. And behind that was another letter on that real pretty letterhead again with the clouds on the top, all embossed. And it said, dear Miss Diana Clark, dear Miss Clark, the Merit Scholarship Committee is me, and we're giving you a full scholarship to come to the University of Tulsa. I was never so happy or so terrified in my life. If you think I fell on my knees and said, thank you, God, I called my sponsor and said, uh-oh, this has gone too far. And she made me see that if you touch 
your dream. You do your part. Your dream may reach out and put its arms around you. He told me I was going to go to Lostville. We didn't know how, but I was going to go. And I went. I sold my house, car, jewelry, everything. Put all money in the bank, split it into 36 payments. Told the kids they were going to live on that. And I went to Lostville, terrified. Sure that I'd flunk. Sure that I couldn't do it. I know they say that fear and faith can't be in you at the same time. I'm here to tell you that there's probably someone else in this room like me, and I can be full of faith and full of fear at the same time. And it happens to me all the time to this day. And they say that what you think, your attitude is everything. And I will climb to that spiritual plane someday, and maybe I'll be back to tell you about it. But right now, my attitude really sucks sometimes. And the grace of God carries me right on by it. I went to law school sure that I could not do it. Would you call that a negative message to myself? I was sure I couldn't. But... You know, they say just take the actions, the feelings will follow, or if they don't follow, too bad, you'll look back and you took the right action. I was pretty well terrified the whole three years I was in law school. Even though at the end of my first year they ranked us and I was second in my class out of 248 kids, I still just knew I was going to flunk out. So what I think doesn't mean anything. Um, touch your dream. You have to touch your dream. My very first year of law school, law school was the real squaring off between my son Paul and I. He had been the center of my attention for years, and now law school was the center of my attention, and he couldn't put up with that. And he did everything to try to stop me. Um, he faked a suicide attempt, and I just put him on the bus to go on to school and said, if you die, tell the nurse what happened, and I'll pick up your body after I take this final... And uh when he was 13, they called me one night at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I always knew, I always knew that my little brown-eyed Paul was headed for big trouble. I finally realized I could, didn't cause it, can't control it, can't cure it. But I knew it was coming, and I just thought he'd be older. And at 13, they called me, and he was out on the sandstones lying outside the coast. And he'd stolen a pickup, and he had loaded guns with extra clips that he'd stolen that were on the street and bombs he had built in the back of the truck and he was going to blow up the school. And I told him, no, I won't come out there. The federal bomb squad and the state bomb squad were out there. And I said, no, I won't come out there. And they're not putting me on TV. I'm not the queen of melodrama anymore. And I've done the best I can in the last few years. And maybe I caused this, but I'm not coming out there. Meet me at the police station with him. So they did. But you know, when those moments come in your life, if you're in this program, you don't go by yourself. I made a couple of phone calls, and four, maybe six people went with me, and I wanted to drink. I've been sober a long time. Five years ago, I've been sober over ten years. I really wanted to drink. This is it. This is the end. I couldn't stand anymore. And I made him keep it, and they tried to send me home, and he was really little for his age, and... It broke my heart when I saw him, but when I knew things that happened to him, I left him in the detention center there for juveniles. Most of the guys were 17, 18, much bigger than him, but I left him. And I told him, I'm really sorry, but I told you if you ever overstep with the law, don't call me. I'm not going to come and save you. And my, when I left, I never said it here in front of me. When I left, I was in trouble. But, you know, it's just hard when you're driving along the college by day, hey, you say, stop a quick trip, I need a six pack. And that's what kept me sober. I would have drank. Well, he ended up with like five felony charges, $50,000 bail, and um, we got him in the psychiatric hospital in Tulsa for seven months, and I'd go to law, get up in the morning at five and study, go to law school. Go to my little job I had at the law school, go by the hospital and see Paul, and there at that hospital was the first time I ever connected with that friend of mine. We sat in the day room one evening on his visitation, and he said, Mother, I have to tell you something. I'm an alcoholic. I said, How? You know, when did you drink? And they drank at school at lunch. They put whiskey in their stiff stuff, hairspray bottles, and glugged them down at lunch. And I knew him. Suddenly, I knew him. I knew where he was coming from, and it's the first time I'd ever connected to him. Well, I'm going to have to make his story and their stories long ones, I mean, short ones. Along the way, my brother came in the program, the one that was a drug addict. 
Strictly by example, I had four years of sobriety, and he still thought I was lying. I was the biggest liar that ever lived. And he'd call at night, try to catch me, slurring my words. And he finally came down to Tulsa to see if I was drinking, and I wasn't. And he moved in with me and went to NA and AA, and he's been sober a long time now and was able to take his son out of a cesspool of drug addiction, take custody of him, and raise his kid. My niece, my sister that had multiple sclerosis, died when she was 47. And her two children have problems, especially her daughter, drug addict and alcoholic, who has about 12 years in this program now. My oldest son, he's 20, and the little kid that was never going to read graduated from mainstream school, high school, and did fine. Um, he's dabbling in and out of college right now, you know, where you take 12 hours and pass this, and I had to put an end to that last semester, but he got married, and he is the most wonderful man. He's very cosmic, he's very spiritual, he's the defender of the wronged and the minorities, and I'm very proud of him, very proud of him. He is an example of God's grace given to me for my regeneration, and through my regeneration, he has been saved at least to this point. My other son's 18, and he came out of the mental hospital and stayed straight for a while and started sticking needles in his arms. People who follow my talks over through conferences will say, how's Paul? They always remember Paul. Well, Paul's alive. Um, he had another spell at school. He got busted for distributing drugs, I think it was. And we got him in a prison alternative ranch camp outside of Tulsa. And he stayed there for 14 or 15 months. And I believe that there he had a spiritual experience. I get in an electrical storm at night out on 10,000 acres. And I had some of my best talks I've ever had with him while he was there, and he was clean and sober during that time. And although he may or may not be clean and sober now, he certainly put a lot of needles in his arms since then. He is not unbonded. He is not psychopathic. He is not schizophrenic. That healed him of that. He is a drug addict and an alcoholic, and I had to put him on the street last December 17th when I found drugs in his car and in his room again. And I did just what I told him I would do. And I said, do you want the dignity of leaving, or do you want me to kick you out? And he said, well, I'm going to make arrangements in a few days. And I said, no, I mean now, you know, I mean tomorrow. So he went on the streets and worm down in Texas. Remember that husband? He's a practicing alcoholic. Well, he came and picked him up. So... I've seen Paul a few times since then. He appears to be clean and sober. He's convinced that he got his hair cut off and he's not a drug addict anymore. So, isn't that lucky? It's that easy for him. I'm a lawyer today. I walked across the stage and got hooded. It's impossible to believe. I've been a lawyer for five years and it's impossible for me to believe. God's grace. God's love. It's not what's happened in my life. It's not the things that may or may not have happened to my children or to me or my health or anything else. It's not even the fact that for these five years I've been terrified. Terrified to go to court. Terrified I won't do good enough. Terrified to be a lawyer. Terrified of life. I'd love to report to you that's all gone, but it isn't. It doesn't make any difference anymore how I feel. I have the honor of doing God's work every day. I went to work for the biggest really white law firm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I swear they all had imaginary white gloves on. Walking down the halls and they did corporate law and CT law, that's what I call it. Nothing dirty. No criminal law, no domestic law. And domestic law was kind of my love because I felt kind of comfortable in that melodrama. I had so much experience. And um, well, some friend of mine in AA come rattling in there on a Harley, you know, with chains and diamond earrings up there, tattoos all over them, and that, these lawyers up there just go crazy. They got out in the lobby. Well, they're here to see Diana. Well, for God's sake, can't she meet them down in the coffee shop? <laughs> You know, they'd come in and I'd say my retainer was $3,000 and they'd pull it out of their pocket and lay it on, the de- on my desk in cash. So, 
they didn't know I was an alcoholic at that firm, and my sponsor and I decided maybe they didn't need to know. Of course, they found out if you speak at enough conferences to think someone's niece or sister or someone's there. No one ever said anything about it. And that firm broke up about three years ago. And the little firm that went off on its own, those partners, I was the only associate they asked to go with them, and I went. And in June of 1996, I decided to do the unheard of thing and go out on my own as a solo practitioner. And I didn't know if it would work. I was making good money. I didn't know if I'd starve. But I felt guided to do it. And every time I talk at a conference about it, God's grace, this divine assistance would come and talk to me. People would come up and hug me in the line and say, I'm a lawyer and I'm out on my own. Do it. Or I know you can do it. I feel like you should do it. And um, I did. I went out on my own. And the best paralegal in the firm said, I'm going with you, honey. And she went with me. And she turned out my daddy to be a spiritual giant. And she's not with us. She's a Jehovah's Witness. And um, she doesn't, I don't think she's ever even been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but she's as much us as you can be because spiritual people are all the same everywhere. All spiritual beliefs are the same. You can, when you come to realize that, the whole world is about how much love goes out from us, not how much comes in. The only love I need to concern myself with is the love that comes from above me into me, physically. And there's no trick to getting that. All you have to do is say, um, and whatever dream you have, all you have to say is, I'm ready to at least acknowledge I have that dream. I'm ready to touch it. It may be growing prize winning roses. It may be being a lawyer. It may be adopting a child or doing volunteer work. Everybody's dream is the same size to God and of the same importance. But we all have one. My practice has blossomed beyond description. I've been able to help people. I've had people pay bills to me. I've had, I had a man come in last week and think I didn't charge him enough. And he gave me money that made me able to help another man who needed to do a custody battle with two little girls. And I'm not saying I sing through my work and think, ain't this grand. I, I go to work with a knot in my stomach and I'm scared the whole time that God gave me this paralegal daddy that works the program with me all day long. And when I say I can't take any more, don't, I don't, I will not take another phone call. She'll say, well, what would God have us do? <laughs> she respects this program so much. A girl I sponsored called and she was going to drink and drug and, and I wasn't there and Debbie said, now, you listen to me. Don't you drink one thing? And don't you do any drugs? Don't you do a thing till Diana gets back? You just boss her around. I've been so blessed. So blessed. I'm um, studying Native American Indian spirituality right now. I'm very fascinated with it. Particularly Fool's Crow, who was Black Elk nephew. And I've been reading his the second book that a Lutheran minister who became very close to Phil Crow wrote after his death in 1994. And I want to tell you this story, and it's so much my story. I had a vision probably two years ago when I was meditating, and I was by a huge dam, a huge concrete dam. It was just enormous. It must have been the Hoover Dam, and it was overwhelming. And I couldn't hardly see the top of it and the roar, roaring of it, the water and the electricity it was making. And um, I was a little tight standing by the dam, a little tight, rusty. And I I was standing by it and, and it was trying to communicate with me, the stand was. And, and I realized it was God. It was a higher power, a big force, and I was just a helpless little rusty pipe. And I said, I can't, there's nothing I can do. And this stand was saying, help me, help me. And I said, I can't. I can't make electricity. I can't make the wa- hold the water back. I can't do anything. I'm just a little rusty pipe. And the dam literally leaned over to me and said, you can help me move water. Lay down. And I realized that in standing up, I couldn't do anything for the dam, but there was a little bit of water that could trickle through me if I lay down. And that that little bit of water meant everything in the world to the dam. And now I'm reading in Phil Crow's book, and he says that we're children of this 
I want to talk of a little hollow bone. Little hollow bone. And that our only job is to recognize that we're little hollow bones and clean out, scrape our insides out so that this love and this power can flow through us, this grace, to other people. I've had a lot of bad things happen to me when I was sober, and I don't call bad things opportunities. That just gags me. I call them bad, horrible things. <laughs> Problems. And um, there's never been anything that's happened that God's grace wasn't big enough if I could remember that I'm only responsible for me. And as much as I adore my two sons, as much as I put them in God's hands, if I got word when I left here today that they'd both been killed in an accident, I'd still be okay. I'd still be God's little hollow bone. And if I were still alive and drawing my breath, which is what I'm responsible for, the water and the grace that flows through me, that would be what matters. And I never thought I would be able to say that. But this world holds nothing in it for me to fear. This is from the woman who was born in a sea of fear. I want to read to you in closing my favorite day from the book God Calling, which is, um, no, I can't talk and look anything up, I'm nervous. Um, the 24-hour a day book that alcoholics read all over the world. The meditation for the day is taken from this book, God Calling, which was written by two anonymous women in 1938. Messages that they got each day directly from God. This is God speaking, if you will. March 26th, follow your guide. I am with you to guide you and help you. Unseen forces are controlling your destiny. Your petty fears are groundless. What of a man walking through a glorious glade who fretted because ahead there lay a river and he might not be able to cross it? when all the time that river was spanned by a bridge. And what if that man had a friend who knew the way, had planned the way, and had assured him that at no part of the journey would any unforeseen contingency arise, and that all was well? So leave your foolish fears and follow me, your guide, and determinedly refuse to consider the problems of tomorrow. My message to you is trust and wait. Take God's grace with you. I feel the magic dust is here. Whether you've been here three days or thirty years, we're all getting the same dose. We all have to be little hollow bones for God to work with. There's so many other people who suffer. And this God that I've come to know and love, the grace is boundless. Just open the door. Thanks for having me.